0: The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash Frame, or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. The exceptional things that people do have always been a lure for a photographer like today's guest Ira Block, who in his career with National Geographic has published over 30 stories for the magazine. But his most recent project is a personal one that combines his love of baseball with his fascination with the people of Cuba. Cuba Loves Baseball is an intimate exploration of this island country's fascination with the game. In his book, he illustrates how baseball is more religion than a sport to Cubans. The project allows Ira to move beyond the cliches that we've been witness to since travel to the country has been eased. He shows us how an entire culture can fall in love with the game.
1: You know, books really don't make you much money these days, <laughs> but they do help promote you know, you, your brand. So they did publish it, did get you the copy of the book.
0: Yeah, yeah, thankfully, yeah, yeah I got it I got it uh, late last week, so it gave me ample time to go through it several times. All right, and
1: uh, not a lot of text except for the two forwards and my afterwards, but that's sort of how I wanted it.
0: Yeah, and I, and I love just like lingering on images, you know, and revisiting them several times over. It's always one of the pleasures I take in, in looking at a book of photography.
1: Well, and yeah, and then for me, uh, so my exhibit is opening June 5th, and one of the great things about having an exhibit and having a book is it's tactile. You have something that's not behind some screen that only exists as sort of a uh, fleeting moment of uh, until you move on to the next one. And having come up in the world of film and prints, it's nice to get
0: back into this I think I was talking to Arthur Myerson, and he was just talking about the importance of books, you know, about the whole idea of, you know, that's, that's where your images live because if, especially if you're shooting editorially or if you're, you know, even a fine art photographer, there's only a finite audience and a duration of time in which the images become available and books really become, you know, the means by which your photographs can have some sense of longevity. Though, you know, you do have to deal with the, with the ins and outs of publishing, especially in today's, in today's age. But books still, you know, for, for a good body of work is still one of the great ways of getting stuff out there.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with that. And it seems lasting. Whereas these days on the Internet, a lot of photography is fleeting. It just shows up for a few minutes or a few days and people move on. They don't get to really linger over them. Yeah. Well I want to talk to you about the, this book
0: Cuba Loves Baseball and but before we get into the details behind the images and putting together the book I I know that you have a, a a great love for the game that goes back to your childhood and could you take us back to the first time you ever got to see a live professional baseball game what was it what do you remember of that experience
1: I recall I was pretty young, and that was just before the Brooklyn Dodgers were gonna be leaving Brooklyn. My dad took me to a game. My memories aren't so much of the game, because I was probably five years old at that point, maybe six, but it was the excitement in the crowd, and it was the smells of the food, and all those other sort of olfactory and hearing things that, that just come back to me. The, the actual game, I, I guess I was too young to remember that what was going on on the field. Plus, I wasn't really a baseball fan at that age, but it was the experience of being in this crowd of people and just feeling this excitement and electricity and you still feel it today when you go to any baseball games, even minor league games. And I'm sure people that go to little league games, there's the same sort of electrical feeling. Yeah, one of my my
0: own visceral memories of uh, of a baseball game was the Dodgers here in, in Los Angeles.
1: Oh, you and, stole them from me, I, <laughs> that's right.
0: <laughs> but I, I, I remember vividly the, the idea of walking down this sort of dark corridor, with this light at the, at the end of this tunnel. And as I was getting closer and closer, hearing the, just the sound you know, the crowds cheering and just, just the noise, the crack of the bat, all of that. And it was just like I was entering a completely different world. And when you come out of that tunnel and you see that beautiful field and, you know, and you see everything that's happening around you, there is such a, a visceral experience that, that, that you have when you walk into a professional um, baseball game that it it's really easy to understand why people, especially when they're very young, just fall in love, not just with the game itself, but the, everything associated with it.
1: Well, it still happens to me uh, when a few times when i've gone into uh, yankee stadium and there are legend seats which are the higher end seats right down on the field mm-hmm. and usually you're coming out of the dining area and you come out of the dining area you walk up a set of stairs and especially at night games, you walk up these stairs and the lights are bright and the field is right in your face it's right in front of you and There's just an incredible excitement. And even though I've done it many times, it's still, it's like entering a stage. It's like being in the, uh, off to the wings of a stage and running out onto the stage. That's the feeling I get when I enter Yankee Stadium that way.
0: And as much as we as Americans may love the game, the Cubans have a very, um, very intimate relationship with the game. And I love how uh, Cifredo Abarros wrote in in your book that for Cubans, it's not just a sport, it is a religion. And having sat down with some Cubans who are big into baseball, I completely got that. <laughs> you know, there, there's something, even though I have family that's, my parents are from Dominican Republic and they talk baseball, but it, it seems like for Cubans, it is completely different experience. Coming from your experience in terms of enjoying the sport in the States, how did you come to re-experience the
1: game through the eyes of the Cuban people? I've been going to Cuba since 1997. I did a few assignments back then for National Geographic magazine. And just being in Cuba, I, I noticed people really liked baseball. And I think it was going back again in about 2013, I'd been to Cuba many times, but around 2013 I was there, and the importance of baseball just sort of jumped out at me there. These people I would meet, people I would see, baseball was what was really important to them, and in doing a little research I found that they've been playing baseball in Cuba almost as long as we have in the the United States. They say it's about 1864, 1868. And the oldest professional stadium in Matanzas, Cuba, the first game was played there in 1874, now the stadium still exists I photographed there but they don't play pro games but that's older than Wrigley field and Fenway Park
0: and when, when you when you were with the Cuban people and you started experiencing the game through their eyes it's very different from it, it, it the way it is here in the states where it's a very commercial entity and you know it's like you know it, it's big it's just like Americans do it everything here big but in Cuba it's not the same thing it's much more familial to a certain degree it's very intimate and how did you sort of experience the game as a result of not just photographing it but just being around people for whom the game is such an important thing
1: well in cuba they they live and breathe baseball it's not a money-making sport the players the pro players don't make much money but kids and grown-ups all types of people love the game they either play the game or or some variation of the game, or they watch the game, they all have a favorite team, they all have favorite players. But unlike the US, it's it feels differently because it's it's not a business there, it's just a pure, there's a purity to the sport. And just hanging out with people, you just feel it, and just, when I would go, usually I'm pretty organized about my shooting, and I like to know where I'm going, what I'm going to do, what we have planned. But with my local Cuban assistant, we would just drive into a town and stop somebody and ask, hey, where are they playing ball? And that just started this momentum of me shooting in that place. I'd find some people playing baseball, kids, middle-aged people, teenagers, and it would just go from there. I'd move from one game or group of people to another so it's it was so easy because of their love for the game to find things to shoot which usually it's a lot more difficult working on a project finding things to shoot here it's just hey where are they playing ball and they point their way
0: as you said, one of the reasons you first went to Cuba was when you were on assignment for National Geographic, but the, largely the images from this book are, are a result not of an assignment, but from a personal project. What what led you to decide to t- take this on and to do it as a p- personal project rather than, you know, say, as a related to an assignment?
1: Uh, at first, I wanted to do it as an assignment, and... This was in about 2013, because in 2013, I knew, you know, I knew that relations were opening up between the U.S. and Cuba, and things would change. And along with things changing, baseball would change. So I figured I really want to shoot this before it changes. I wanted to capture and document the sport as it was now, a pure sport. When I mentioned it to the National Geographic, they said, well, we'd probably be interested in doing it, but we can't do it right now. We We want to put it in the budget for 2015. And I was afraid that by 2015, too many things would change. So I decided to do it as a personal project. I found a foundation that would help finance it. And looking back, it was the smartest thing I ever did because I was doing it for myself now. I wasn't looking over my shoulder thinking about what editors would want, what different people would feel was missing. This was something that was all just from me. And here I am shooting something I love and I'm doing it myself. Nobody telling me what to do. Did you find that the the
0: way you shoot and what you shot was any different than when you did it for, uh, for assignment? Or did you find that you pretty much shot the way that you always did?
1: I believe I shot, I started shooting it as if it were an assignment because that's in my DNA. That's what I've been doing for the last 30 years, mostly is shooting assignments and small personal projects, usually local. But As it progressed after my first trip, my head opened up and I was just able to shoot it more sort of organically, the way I felt it should be shot as opposed to thinking about what I needed as far as coverage for a client. So it was a really enlightening experience for me to be able to shoot this way. And as a result, this is what I want to do in the future. I want to shoot things that are more personally satisfying to me. You
0: know, one of the aesthetic choices you made was the use of strobe uh, not, and not strictly using available light in terms of producing the photographs. What was the reason behind incorporating that that technology in, in the creation of the photographs?
1: Looking at Cuba, it's a colorful place. It's, it's a Caribbean island that's got sunshine and bright colors. Even the faded old buildings still have interesting colors. So I I thought I want to take advantage of the color of this place. And I also wanted to keep the photos upbeat. I thought this is an upbeat project. I, I wanted to do something positive because there was so much there's so much negative news and negative projects people are doing on war and conflict and refugee camps so this was in my mind going to be upbeat and so to show the colors and to keep it upbeat strobe light when i could use it really accented all this it made the colors more poppy they things just jumped at you more, so I tried to use this as a look, and even when I couldn't use strobe, I just tried finding light and color that, you know, had that sort of very bright, happy feeling. You know, one of the interesting things about, about this whole project
0: was gaining access um, because even though Cuba up until you know very recently um, um, was sort of difficult to access if you weren't doing it in, as part of a sort of a cultural exchange, uh, it's, and, and there are a lot of people now going to Cuba to make photographs, you still had to surmount a variety of different obstacles to be able to photograph and produce these images. And one of the interesting stories that I heard uh, was how you gained access that it was... Part part and parcel uh, as a result of a conversation that you had at, a, at your gym. Tell us about that.
1: Uh, I belong to a gym here in New York, Chelsea Piers, where I've been going for 20 years. And people, people there know I'm a photographer. I travel around the world a lot. And in the locker room one day, someone said, hey, Ira, where you been? Which is common. And where are you going? And I mentioned to this man, who I just knew from the locker room, I said, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna go back to Cuba. I wanna do a project on baseball. I'm just trying to figure out how to make it happen. He said to me, well, you should get in contact with my sister. Now, this man was an older gentleman in his 70s, and his sister was in her 80s, and they were both from Brooklyn, and I just was, it was just it was incredulous. What some woman from Brooklyn who's 80 years old could do for me. It turns out that, uh, his sister has been living in Cuba since Castro came in. She was a, you know, a leftist back in the mid fifties at Brooklyn college and she went to a big convention in Paris, a communist convention, met some Argentine student. They fell in love. They got married, he became a doctor, they were living in Argentina, and when Castro came in, Castro needed doctors, he got recruited, and eventually started teaching at the medical school. She had interest in filmmaking, and so along the way she became a very famous filmmaker in Cuba, doing a lot of documentaries for Castro and about Castro. So she just opened every door for me. Her name just made it so easy to get the official permission. And I was doing a project that was a positive project for the Cuban government. I wasn't looking at politics. I wasn't looking at economics. I was looking at baseball. What, you know, what could be better? Does that sort of serendipity
0: or often play a role in, in some of the assignments that you have done? You've done over 30 for National Geographic, but do like chance encounters like, like that sometimes prove to be the means that opens a door for you being able to produce some of the photographs?
1: A couple of friends of mine that are photographers, we talk about photographer's luck and the, the definition of luck is when opportunity and preparation collide, and serendipity is another part of that, and if you're really a good photographer, things just seem to happen, because you just have this extra sense about doing the right thing, being in the right place, and you're going to get your normal pictures out on an assignment or on a project. But if you stick with things, eventually you'll have some moments that you didn't plan for that are going to be incredible. And that's just that's just how it works. And you can't plan it. You can't graph it. You just have to be part of it. In in line with that with that line of questioning. Tell, tell us about how that
0: first experience that you had for your first assignment with National Geographic took you to the North Pole because you had no you hadn't had no experience working under those kinds of conditions. Uh, before, so there were a lot of unknowns. Yet you successfully came back with some great photographs. How did how did what we're just talking about this this idea of photographer's luck and preparation and research play a role in you being able to create those those the images that end up you know, creating a, a lifelong career working for Nat Geo?
1: The trip to the North Pole was actually, I think, my third assignment for them. I. Done a couple of the small things, and I just got called into the director of photography's office, and he said, uh, "You want to go to the North Pole and document this Japanese explorer?" Well, I was twenty four, twenty five years old then, yeah, maybe twenty six, and I wasn't going to say no, so I said, "Sure, no problem." You know, the director of photography also knew I grew up in Brooklyn. And knew I was not an Arctic specialist, but I think at that point, he just wanted to really test me to see if I had what it took to be a photographer for the magazine. And it was probably the most important, not only photographic assignment of my life, but just one of the most important uh, moments of my life to learn how to survive in the extreme climates. I you know, I was a pretty savvy street kid growing up in Brooklyn, but I certainly didn't know how to deal with the outdoors. And I learned a lot very quickly on that assignment. I learned not only photographically and dealing with the elements but I also it was a great cultural learning experience because I was living with five or six Japanese who spoke no English and we were together about three months so I learned how to communicate with people I learned how to deal with tight living situations and just making things work you you said you just said that You know that it was an opportunity for the editor
0: to see whether or not you had what it took to be a nat geo photographer. So, from your perspective, beyond being able to consistently make good photographs, what are some of the characteristics that really that it really takes for a photographer to have to successfully, you know, not only fulfill the requirements of an individual assignment but to do that
1: over a long long period of time, just as you have. You have to know how to tell a story with photos. It's one thing making a good image, it's another thing telling a story with your photos and moving that story along. So you, you have to sort of find images that are gonna keep your story flowing. And sometimes the images are not easy to get. You need to get images that have stopping power that will make the reader stop and look at the image and become interested in the story and keep going. Now, a lot of images, there are some images that are easy because something's going on, something's going on that looks great, and that's easy to photograph. But sometimes you have to take a situation that's not very picturesque and figure out a way to make it look really interesting and come alive especially and I learned I learned that lesson because at one point early in the career they asked me to do some archaeology photos and I'd be pointed to a rock and <laughs> someone would say, Yeah, this rock is really important and I'm looking at it and wow, <laughs> this it's a rock. Hey, what am I you know, what am I gonna do with it? So I that's where i learned about lighting and how to make images come alive through the use of light so that it didn't look so boring and you didn't have the benefit of photoshop or digital you were shooting all this stuff on film yeah every you know i still believe in getting the picture right in the camera because i you know i became a photographer not to sit in front of a computer i'm sitting in front of a computer too much as it is but I didn't, I became a photographer to experience the world. And for me, when I take that picture, I want to get it right in camera. I want to, you know, I want to, when I look at that picture that I got right in the camera, I want to remember the smells and the sounds. In my head, that are associated with that picture. Yeah. I, I don't want to remember, God, I spent three hours in Photoshop trying to do this layer or whatever. But
0: that's an interesting thing that you just told me, though, about about the rock. I mean, because I, when I think about National Geographic and I think about you know, especially the images in, in your Cuba book, some of those things are, are things that are happening right then and there, and, and involves people. So there's a fluidity, there's an action involved, there's a whole dynamic. But when you're when you're called to include an inanimate object in there as part of the storytelling then you have to as you just said you know figure a way of making an interesting image that fits into this whole package that you're trying to present is is that really the means by which when you're faced with such a subject is finding a way of just making it interesting either by the use of light color composition and are you always thinking in terms of the bigger story in which
1: this picture is going to fit into yeah you've got to you've got to work all those thoughts in your mind you've got to see how it's going to fit into the bigger picture, and you've got to do something with that individual image to make it more interesting to make it something that people uh, can relate to i a lot of my people pictures are not shot with long lenses, and I tell this when I do my workshops, I tell this to students, put away the long lens. If you, you, when you shoot a picture of people with a long lens, it has a feel of paparazzi that you're, you're sneaking a photo in. Even if people don't understand it, that are looking at it, they, they, they just have that feeling. For me, I like to work in closer with a wider lens because I think when the view is looking at that photo, they just somehow know. They don't know from a 28-millimeter to a 100-millimeter lens, but just looking at that photo, it feels more intimate. Mm -hmm. It feels like the photographer is really more involved with the people, whereas a picture with a long lens feels like paparazzi. You know, one of the things that you have to do, especially where you're working for an editor
0: for for, for a magazine like Nat Geo, is give your editor choices. So, talk to me about when you're shooting a, a picture, whether it is an environmental portrait or whether it's work working a scene. How much does that sort of factor in when you're 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 shooting?
1: It factors in a lot, and I think it's it's been good for me because when when I'm shooting, I shoot a lot of pictures. I work the angles and even if I think I have the picture, even if I think I've got the image, I'm never satisfied. So I'm always shooting more. I'm always thinking, well, if we move a little bit this way, the light will look different. Uh, Maybe something's gonna happen in the next two minutes or three minutes. So the idea that you're never satisfied with your own photography, makes you shoot more, which produces choices for the editor. but it also it also gives you choices as a photographer I'd rather come back to my studio and look at my photos and be frustrated because I can't choose. I've got so many great images of a situation that it's hard for me to choose the best one. I'd rather be in that situation than in a situation oh, all these photos are crap. Which one can, you know, which one can I pick that sort of has a good look to it?
0: You know, one of the things I've, I've heard you say with, with your students is that, you know, you, you like to think of pictures as simple, uh, simple pictures with interesting compositions or something along those lines. Tell me what you, what you mean by that.
1: Well, a, a good photograph has basically three elements. You know, good light, Good composition and a good moment. Colors and stuff like that, well, to me, that's part of the light. But the one that is easiest to control in the at the beginning is the composition. I think composition is what draws people in, different lines and shapes, or what draw people into the picture, and having especially for a student, someone new in photography, having a simple composition makes it easy. A lot of my compositions get more complicated because I like to have layers, I like to have something going on in the foreground, middle ground, and background, but that takes a lot of experience as to size relationships and making foreground, background, middle ground come together. So to start with, I always tell people just keep the composition simple, just keep it one dimensional so you learn how to look through the viewfinder and not focus your brain and your eyes on what's going on just in the center of the image. You have to learn to look to the edges and sides and make that work with the composition. So simple compositions are great in the beginning, and they're great for a lot of images, until you get to a point where you can actually try doing more complicated, layered compositions.
0: And, And I've heard you say that you like starting your compositions backwards.
1: Yeah, people are always surprised, but I almost work from the background forward, because usually it's the background that becomes distracting if it's a bad background, you may have a great moment going on in your foreground, but if your background's terrible, then it distracts from what's going on in the foreground. If you if something's going on and the background's way overexposed, your, your eyes go to that, or if you have things growing out of people's heads, it goes to that, so what I try to do is find a background that's a, that's a part of the story that looks good, and wait for things to happen in front of that background. Then I've got that combination of a really good moment in the foreground, and my background fits in and works with the story, and instead of being distracting, actually adds to the photograph.
0: I grew up with looking at National Geographic magazines, and at one point I just had a collection of magazines going back, I think, to the 30s, probably maybe even the 20s at one point. And one of the things I loved about Looking at those photographs was the way photographers use light and color. And as I came up as a photographer, I gravitated to Kodachrome, Kodachrome 64, Kodachrome 200 to shoot my own images, my own my own projects. And one of the as lovely as those colors looked, you were always dealing with very relatively low ISOs on those. And, and that was always one of the big challenges of pulling off images that you were shooting under really low light conditions. And now we have digital cameras that provide us astronomically high ISO capability to create images. And I'm wondering how has that flexibility changed the way you create images under those similar, under those kinds of circumstances?
1: Oh, it's amazing. It's totally amazing. I still every once in a while think back to me shooting with 64 or 100 film and wonder how i got some of the pictures i got the the highest i used to go was i think 200 kodachrome occasionally you could push it and that was it when i think about 200 kodachrome now in did in the digital world i start usually at iso 200 and i could shoot stuff at thirty two hundred sixty four hundred without blinking an eye when uh, i 've shot some some images with my sony a seven s and i 've shot those at fifty two thousand in the desert by candlelight and it has a little bit of noise, but the noise looks like tri x film grain it 's got you know it 's got the right look, so the high iso ability has just made it possible to really open up what you could do for your stories. If you're doing a coverage or a story or a project about something, now things that you could not shoot in film, you could shoot with digital. You've just opened up your story by 50%. There's so many more things you could shoot. It's it's amazing.
0: Can, can you give me an example of, of a project, a story that you were shooting, that because you had that capability, that it did open up a certain part of the story that would have been difficult, if not impossible, to create in the past?
1: Well, the, the uh, instance I gave on, I was in the Moroccan desert, and we were out at some tents, and some, some locals started playing some music, and there was candlelight now. I could have set up a couple of strobes or lights, but as good as you are with strobes and lights, it, it the mood is just not there in that kind of situation. So I I went to 52,000 ISO, and I was able to make images. I, I think I could shoot 125th of a second at F2, because people were moving, their hands were moving on drums and instruments, so I needed, a reasonably high shutter speed. So that's a picture, 52,000 ISO. The camera was seeing brighter than my eyes could see.
0: Has that really sort of changed the way that you see? Because you know, when you shoot at that high ISO, the way that the image is 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 rendered as compared to your eye is very different, as you just noted. It, it can be a completely dark scene. Has has that sort of led you to sort of evolve the way that you see, let's say, color and light when when the situation is is so different
1: from what you normally encounter when when there's a, an abundance of light. Well, you, you know, fortunately. You could see how the light and color are looking on the preview at the back of the, or the review at the back of the camera to get an idea of, you know, what things are looking like. But like everything else in photography, as you do it more and more and you gain the experience, you, you just know that the way things are going to look because you've done it enough before that you know, yeah, you know, I know it's going to, you know, certain pictures will have some noise. But I also realize the noise will add to the drama and the and the look of the photos. So it's a it's something that's that's just going you know the the color the light you could you know if if you go into auto white balance or you want to clean up the color in post production you can I I really don't worry that much about. What color, you know, setting I'm on, it's in those really crazy mixed lighting images, because I I actually, the more bizarre the color looks, sometimes it, it, the more the view is going to be interested in that image.
0: One of the great things about the the, the digital digital world is how the ease by which we can create prints now and before we started recording, you had mentioned that you're going to have an exhibit that opens in the beginning of June of of your Cuba work. And when we, when you and I and everyone who's listening looks at pictures, most of the time we're looking at them on a screen, and if we're photographers, we're always pixel peeping, you know, looking at those you know, as two hundred, four hundred percent, looking at every little you know pixel in the image. But when you're looking at a print, it's a completely different experience, and I'm, and I'm wondering. You know, when you were producing the prints for this exhibit, how how did you sort of re experience your own
1: photographs when you saw them on paper hanging up on a wall? Oh that's a great thing about prints and books. We're all of us as photographers are now spending most of our time viewing images, you know, on a monitor and to me it's it's still. Where's that picture? It's. It's nothing I could physically hold. It's somewhere behind that monitor. It's in this box, that I could never get to. When you make prints, it's. It's tactile. You've got this print in your hand. You're looking at it. Uh, when. When I was laying out the book, with my book designer, no way could we do that on a monitor. I made little four by six inch prints of all the final images and we just laid them out on the floor or on a wall it's it's and then you could just move them around does this look better next to this one that's something you just can't do on a monitor so being able to get back into the world of prints and books and seeing your images as a lasting thing not uh not as it is on a monitor where you just hit the arrow button to go to the next one. It, it's great. It's a great feeling.
0: You know, Cuba is not the only project that you've, you've worked on. You've been working on a Buddha project over an extended period of time. And to share with us why it's important for you to work on projects over a long long period of time. What does it provide you as a, as a photographer and as an artist?
1: Yeah, having a project going on is a reason to take pictures when you're not working. If you just shoot pictures when you're commissioned, well, we used to say you're sitting by the phone all the time waiting for it to ring. Well, if that doesn't happen, you're usually sitting at your computer waiting for some email to come in that says you've, you've got a job or don't have a job. But having personal projects gives you the ability to find a reason to shoot. Uh, I've got, I just had an opening, I was there two weeks ago in Taiwan on one of my Buddha exhibits, and I'm still continually shooting on it. It's it's great to be on a project where you're not really finished. You could always keep shooting. The Cuba project, I knew I had to finish because I wanted to get the book out, I wanted to get things done, and it was It was sad, my last day of shooting. But these other projects are things that sort of when you're not shooting, it gives you something to work on. And it's something that's all yours. You're not waiting to hear from an editor to when he gets around, he or she gets around to looking at your photos. This is all about you. You're in the driver's seat on on your own project. Mm.
0: Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend a photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why?
1: Oh, wow. That's, you know, that's tough. I've always... One of the guys that inspired me because of his storytelling ability, and he just died a couple of years ago, was a Life Magazine photographer named Bill Epridge. Oh, yeah, Bill. Huh? And I, I remember when I was in high school and just getting interested in photography, Life Magazine came out with this two-part essay about a place in New York called Needle Park. And it was about a couple, a boyfriend, girlfriend that were heroin addicts. And he lived with these people I don't know for how long, weeks or months. And I just started thinking, how powerful is photography and photographers when they could enter someone's life, someone's life that's pretty bizarre because they're, you know, drug addicts, drug users, and they let you into their life and they allow you to document these moments that that people don't get to see and I thought wow this is this is the power of photography, and this is the ability of a photographer to be able to ingratiate himself enough to enter this world and so ever since then i've you know he was a guy that very much inspired me, and you know his work has always inspired me. Yeah, one of his
0: books, uh, the book of images of Robert Kennedy's campaign in '68, uh, is one of my favorite books. I've had it since it first came out. He's a wonderful, wonderful photographer and a great,
1: great recommendation. Yeah, and he's not one of the super well known guys that uh, that you know people can other that other people would talk about. But to me, he just he knew how to tell a story. He knew how to get in with people and make some connection. That, as a as a viewer, not as a photographer, just as a viewer, you you go, wow, this is amazing. This is so intimate.
0: Well, tell before we go, uh, tell us about the exhibition that's opening up uh, in in New York.
1: Yeah, it's opening uh, June fifth. It's at the Sony Square Gallery, which is. Uh, in the Sony building at uh, 25th Street in Madison, it's a collection of some of my Cuban photos. I've had a few exhibitions, but this is a nice one in New York City. And again, wow, getting an exhibition, having people come and look at your photos is better than them looking at them online because I think it's you know a real experience to be able to stand in front of an image. It's hopefully Gallery exhibitions, prints, books. Hopefully, they're coming back a little bit more because I think we've entered too much into the social media world, where a picture is about its spontaneity and just getting it up. It's not about the quality or the or the storytelling of that picture.
0: And, and you really don't get to enjoy a photograph when you're looking at flipping your finger using Instagram, where you only see it for a couple of seconds
1: true but instagram is is my new way of telling stories it's a new way of communicating with people it's sort of the new publishing world for me because i've got a lot of followers on instagram you know i uh at ira block photo and not only do people follow me but i get feedback instant feedback some of the feedback isn't that important but A percentage of that feedback is really great to hear from people about why they like it, you know, how it moved them, you know, even if they didn't like it, I like to hear it. It's uh, So as much as I love my old world of the archaic prints and books, there is something you can't ignore. There's the new world of Instagram and Facebook and communication that way. Well,
0: Ira, thank you so much for making time for us at The Candor Frame. It was a, I really enjoyed having the chance to talk to you about your work and your Cuba book. And, and to everyone listening, I really heartily recommend it. It's a wonderful, wonderful title.
1: Thanks. Great speaking with you and great, great to be on your show.
0: Thanks to Ira for spending time with us. To find out more about Ira and his work, visit irablock.com. And you can show your support of the Candid Frame by writing a review in the iTunes Store. As people search for podcasts to listen to, these reviews can lead people to us for the very first time. And that can make all the difference. So if you haven't already, please take the time to do that today. You can support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. And for as little as $2 a month, you can help us to not only meet the cost of production for the show, but allow us to improve our podcast, YouTube channel, and website. Or if you just want to make a one-time contribution, you can do so via PayPal. You'll find links for both on the Candid Frame website or the show notes. Thanks to Eric Halsinger for his contribution to the show. Thank you so much. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS and Android. Not only will you immediately receive the latest episode on your phone or tablet, but you can now easily share your favorite episodes on your social networks and help spread the word. And if you want to drop me a line with comments or suggestions for the show, you can email me directly from the app. Download it today by clicking on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. The Cannon Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at TheOtherMartinTaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin MacLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at Incompetech.com. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at IvarianX. And this is IvarianX, and this is The Cannon Frame.